Well, Longview Point, good morning. I'm glad to be here. It's a pleasure to be here with you guys today and an honor uh, that I don't take lightly, and that is preaching the Word of God to you all. And just my prayer that although this is giving information, uh, the saints will still be equipped. Uh, If you don't know who I am, which I understand, uh, if you do not, if you don't remember, uh, as it was about a year ago, you guys affirmed me and and my calling into being a church planting uh, resident here at Longview Point, and that was about a year ago. Uh, And so my name is Wesley Smith, and and I'm planting a church in Cleveland, Mississippi, Uh, me and my my wife, who who is joining me, uh, kind of a package deal. And uh, we are starting in Cleveland, hopefully in January. The last Sunday of January is, is when, what we are shooting for uh, to launch. And what I'm doing up here before you guys today is uh, to celebrate. Celebrate what God is doing uh, in the world today and, and, and using and raising up leaders and, and core team members, put it, putting a, a calling on our hearts to plant new churches. And we celebrated that today. Uh, with, with Charlie and, and with Trey and uh, the two previous services up to this point, and, and we're going to continue to celebrate that. But also for me, uh, this is a time of celebrating and rejoicing over um, uh, 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 churches that plant other churches. Uh, Longview Point is an accurate representation of that. Uh, Longview Point has, I'll tell you, you guys, uh, most of you here are just oblivious to the impact you guys have had on my life. Uh, and just being able to provide platforms for training, uh, relationships with you guys as staff, and with some of you here today as well. Uh, to uh, a church playing churches like you guys who make the sacrificial effort to, to give uh, and, and provide your resources for church planting uh, to advance the kingdom of God for his praise and honor and glory. And so I, I could make this whole sermon about expressing the gratitude and commending you guys for doing that. Um, but but I'm, I'm going to actually get to the word. Uh, so what I'm going to do today, uh, this is not the first time that I am preaching and dispensing information to uh, a church partner uh, because I, we're kind of in a predicament here. Um, I, I, you guys deserve information, right? You, you guys as a partner church, you got to know what you're, you're giving out there. Or you you got to know what you're giving to. So you guys deserve updates and information about what's going on and what we're doing in Cleveland in this new church planting endeavor. Uh, but at the same time, the predicament is I, I don't speak in public unless I preach. Uh, so we're in a dilemma. And so what I'm going to do is, is I'm going to preach. We will be in Judges chapter 6. Uh, if you want to turn there now and get a head start. Uh, we will start in verse 1. Uh, I, I really mean this meaningfully. I, I don't know where we're going to end up. Uh, I'm just going to start in verse 1. I think Rhonda put on, on the app, if you're looking at the sermon notes, to verse 22. I don't know. We'll, we'll try to get there. I'm just going to keep going until uh, uh, some of you start getting up and walking out. And then that's when I'll take it that my time is up and start wrapping it up. It's 11 o'clock service. There's not another service after this, right? So I can preach as long as I want. That's the rule. I don't make the rules. This is what you guys ask for. You, you, you decide to make the decision to, to come and attend the 11 o'clock service. So some of you did not think that was very funny. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to do Judges chapter 6, uh, verse 1. Uh, I, I think it would be best to begin uh, with 
um, and preaching and the combination of preaching to you guys, just expositing this, this passage of Scripture in Judges chapter 6. Uh, but it's at the same time, giving you guys information and updates about what we're doing in Cleveland. Uh, I guess the best way to start is uh, uh, engaging and, and, and recognizing the, this misapprehension of the role of the church. Uh, not just among unbelievers, but many Christians today uh, have this misunderstanding about what the church is to be doing. That is what Christians are to be doing from the time that Jesus ascended to the heavenly places until the time that he comes back for us and for his church to redeem his creation and restore his creation. And there seems to be this misunderstanding about what we are supposed to be doing and what our mission truly is. And because of that, that we see an influence there. And the byproduct of that is that many Christians and churches seem to take on more of a weak posture. And when I say a weak posture, I mean we kind of take on the posture when it comes to engaging the community with the gospel as someone in a fetal position, curled up in the ball in the corner of their house, right? And to, you know, shut, shut the doors, lock the doors, Turn off the lights, close the blinds, get away from the world, get, get away from the evil and darkness out there. And, you know, if our patience is good enough, we'll, we'll endure to the end and Jesus will come back for us. Uh, that second part is absolutely true. I, I wouldn't be able to get up this morning if, if I didn't know that Jesus was returning back for his church and, and find his church blemish or without blemish and holy and blameless. But that first part, not so much. Uh, I'll tell you this, to start out, to give you guys a verse uh, that describes the role of the church, every church, uh, or the purpose of Christ's church, uh, that I think is an accurate representation of what my church plant and what we're doing in Cleveland uh, uh, is, is what our vision is. And so there's a verse in Ephesians chapter 1. Before we, skip, before we get to chapter 2, we love that chapter, but, but in, at the end of chapter 1 of Ephesians... It, it, it talks about there, Paul writes to the, to the church in Ephesus, and he says that the church is the body of Christ. We know that one. We, we've heard that one before for most of us. But he goes on to say something else. He says the church is the body of Christ, the fullness of him, that is the fullness of Jesus, who fills all in all. The church is the body of Christ that, that is the fullness of Jesus who fills all in all. That, that's a, a complex way to say this. You ready? I'm about to give you guys, y'all in for a treat. I'm about to give you guys the definition of what the role of the church is until the day that Jesus returns in one sentence to, 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 to show you guys what uh, that, those two verses in Ephesians chapter 1 is and what it means. And that is this. The role of the church is to be filled by the power of Christ so that we can fill the earth with his glory. That's the role of the church. To be filled by the power and, and, and the power and guidance of Jesus so that we can go out and fill the world with his glory. That's it. It's simple. And, and so we as Renovate Church, by the way, that's the name of this new church plant. And it's not because we are starting a disco club. It, it, it is to reflect the vision of the church. We, we want to renovate and, and uh, renovate Cleveland, Mississippi for the glory of God. 
We want to turn the town of Cleveland, Mississippi up on its head for the praise and honor of Jesus Christ. That if we believe as we, when we engage our community with the gospel and people respond in faith and repentance, souls are saved and thereby brokenness that results from sin will be reversed. That's our vision for Renovate Church. So instead of taking on this posture that the church oftentimes takes on as someone in a fetal position, hiding from the darkness outside, instead, this is what we do. The posture we take on is instead to go out in the midst of that darkness, in the midst of that evil, punch a hole in the face of that darkness, while at the same time maintaining and upholding the life of righteousness God has called us to live. To engage the darkness with the gospel in their territory to make it the way Jesus wants it to be made. There, there's a story, if, if our ministry, I should say, that's going to lead to a story um, called Grace at the Green Light. It is a ministry in New Orleans. To be more specific, it's a, it's a homeless ministry in New Orleans. And it, they, what they do, they do a lot of things. But they uh, provide breakfast every single morning, every single morning for homeless people there. Uh, there's a big homeless problem in New Orleans, and, and so that's one thing that they do. They provide shelter for them throughout the day, and uh, God has really blessed uh, this ministry, and they're doing a lot of great things uh, for the Lord in New Orleans. Um, but how it was uh, founded is a really cool story. Um, there's this, this businessman who was a very wealthy guy. He was a believer, and he would travel to his work every morning. A every single morning, he would take the same route. And he would drive by what is called in New Orleans, uh, Tent City. And what Tent City, unless that name has changed for, since the last couple of years, uh, Tent City is uh, this bridge. And under this bridge is where a lot of homeless people uh, meet there. And, and when they don't just meet there, they pitch their tents there. And, and, and that's where they live. That's where they spend the nights. And so he would, every morning, early in the morning, go to his big fancy job with, with all his, his colleagues. And, and he would stop at this red light just about every single morning on his way to work. And, and he would, the Lord began to stir his heart up uh, for the, those who were homeless. And he began to, to, to pray more often when he would stop at that red light for these, these homeless people. And sometimes he would buy them snacks and water. And, and he would pull over on his way to work and, and distribute those things. And then one day he got to a point, he, was, he stopped at this red light, and he began praying. And God really started to stir the heart, his heart within him. And, and he stopped, he began praying, but then he started to become angry. And he started asking God, no, no, how, why don't you do something about this? How can this happen? Look at all the homelessness here and people who don't have homes. And, and most of these people don't know Jesus. Why don't you do something about this? And then this is, this is what, how the story goes. He claims that at that moment, uh, a voice spoke back to him and asked him and said, why don't you do something about it? And, and so this is kind of what we find the church is supposed to be doing. That, that God, and we have to distinguish between two different things, and that is God's uh, capabilities, but distinguish that between, from his tendencies, if God, if God wanted people to worship him, he'll get the rocks to do it. He'll get the rocks to cry out and do it. He doesn't need his church. All right? we, we are not the heroes here, but God's tendency is to use his people to reverse the brokenness in our world. What we're going to find here in Judges chapter 6 is that God overturns the darkness of this world 
by the usage of his people. He overturns the darkness of the world with his marvelous light to bring glory to himself through the usage of his people. What we find in, in Judges is the same cycle. Not that we're going through the whole book of Judges, but, but we're going th- we see the same cycle happening over and over and over again uh, where God's people will experience rest and then eventually they will rebel against God. And, and because they rebel, uh, instead of playing their role of being a blessing and a light for, uh, uh, to the nations to, to draw the people to the presence of God at the temple or tabernacle, whatever it was at that time in the promised land. Uh, and, and what they would do instead of, and instead of following through with that, uh, they would rebel and they would succumb to the pressures of, uh, the, the surrounding nations and their pagan religious, uh, religious ways. And, and they would succumb to the pressures of that. And then God would give them what they wanted and, and give them into the hand of the nations. Then eventually you'll go and proceed more into this, into the cycle and this pattern that, um, they would repent and cry out to the Lord, and if that repentance was genuine, God would have restored them. And then not long after that, the same process will happen again, and God's people don't get it, and they eventually rebel once again. And then you see this process going on and on and on throughout the book of Judges, that there's this rebellion, repentance, restoration. Rebellion, repentance, restoration. But you see God do something, and liberating his people from the oppression and power of the surrounding pagan uh, uh, nations and their religious ways that are contrary to God's will and characters that he raises up a judge and leads his people in his presence, direction, and power to do something and to make a difference. Let me show you guys what I mean. Verse 1 in chapter 6. Hear now the words of the one true living God. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. In verse 5, for they would come up with livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste to land as they came in. So you find in verse 1 through 5 that the people of God, Israel at that time, uh, to say the least, we're in a very vulnerable position. They're in a very uh, vulnerable condition. Is that the Israel, uh, the people of God, were overpowered by Midian. And because God gave them into the hand of Midian. And this was a result of uh, their covenant unfaithfulness. That, that God gave them into the hand of the, the religions and the people around them at that time because they are facing the consequences of not being God's light to the nations. That God made it clear prior to going into the promised land. He said, I'm going to give you this land. Guaranteed. It's happening. It's going to happen. It's inevitable. But when I give you this land, I'm paraphrasing. When I give you this land, 
All right, you are going to have to drive out every identity marker, anything that, that is in opposition to my will and character, and then replace that with the presence of the one true God, Yahweh. And to be a light to the nations, to reflect the wisdom of God and, and be stationed there in the promised land to draw the surrounding nations there. I'll give you guys an example in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 3. Prior to them going into the promised land, this is God's commandment to them. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the uh, carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. It's very explicit. It's very, very aggressive there. But the call, the command was clear to drive out every identity marker that reflect uh, uh, the, the, the religious pagan ways of those nations and replace that with the, the ways of the one true God. But because he didn't do it, we see brokenness emerge as a result. And in preparing for this message, it led me to ask a question myself. Okay, and, and that question is, how much of the brokenness around us today could be said to be a consequence of our unwillingness to be proactive to stand for the truth of the gospel? How much of the brokenness around us can we, can we say is due a, a direct result of us not standing for truth boldly and confidently to make a difference in the world for God's glory? What we find here first in this passage is that for God's people, there's much work that needs to be done. There's a, lot, a whole lot of work that needs to be done. Now, now I'm, I'm typically much more optimistic than most people when it comes to this. And that's probably a combination of just me being young and energetic and, and just wanting to take, conquer the world, you know. And, but also my, my eschatology has something to do with that as well. But even I will say, man, there is a lot of work that needs to be done uh, here in the world around us. Uh, in Cleveland, Mississippi, I told you guys I was going to inform you of, of my context. Uh, in, in Cleveland, Mississippi, there's this uh, study done by Mission Insight. And Mission Insight did, they did a lot of different things, but, but I'm not going to bore you with that. Uh, but there's a study done that they uh, uh, um, kept up, kept a record with the spiritual perspective of the Cleveland population from the year 2017 uh, to the year 2021. And what they found... In the year 2017, we found that the people in Cleveland uh, who believed that they had a relationship with the one true living God was 45.7%. I'm sorry, 60.5%. Only five years later, in 2021, that population, who, or the group of people who said that they had a relationship with the one true living God, was now 45.7%. 60 percent okay, you can work with, but God, listen, a five-year a five-year gap, a five-year span of time, you find almost a 15% drop-off rate of people who say that they believe they have a relationship with the one true living God. If you go on to see that people who believe that Jesus is the only way for salvation from sin, today is 33.5% of the Cleveland population. That's actually a 20% drop-off rate from five years earlier. People who believe Jesus rose from the dead as the Bible teaches, 
18% drop-off rate from five years ago. This is just, just five years. I, I would, you know, 50 years, I can see an 18% to 20% drop-off rate, but this is a span of five years of, of just the, the perspective of Jesus and, and seeing him as for, the, for, the, for the, word, the person worthy of worship that he actually is, just a decrease in that. And just in case before you guys began thinking, well, Wesley, you better do your job then. That's Cleveland. That's your place. You got to get it together. All right, I, I will say I didn't do any statistics on Hernando, Mississippi, but just to be given more general statistic, one more. This is the last statistic, I promise. And uh, in, in um, Pew Research Center in America uh, says that in the year 2018 to 2019, they found up to that point, that the group of professing Christians were down 12% over the last decade. All right, it, it is obvious to see that there's still much more work that needs to be done for the people of God. And in verse 6, that first phrase in verse 6, it says, And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. What we find here, this in Hebrew, to be brought very low, uh, it literally means in the Hebrew to be made small. To be made small. That, that the, due to the Midianites surrounding, surrounding them and the Amalekites that we found earlier, uh, that they were made small. And so this seems to suggest uh, that God's promises to Abraham were, were being reversed. It seems to indicate, at least on the surface, don't throw me out just yet, but on the surface that God's promises to Abraham that he was going to multiply his offspring as much as the stars in the heavens and the, and the sand on the seashore, that it seems to be made reverse. And, and instead of going up and on this incline, but they were made small. But this is for those of us who know the full story, that God's promises will attain. In fact, God's promises are being fulfilled as we speak. We believe that despite what we may currently perceive in our own space-time perspective, that we believe that Philippians 2, verse 10 through 11 says, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. That pretty much covers it everything. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That God will fulfill his promises that he has made from the very beginning. Despite at that time the amount of work that needed to be done, it didn't look like it. And this is why we can engage in this mission to make disciples of all nations, drawing the people to the Lord, being used by him in order to do that. We can, we can do it with confidence and with a small sense of optimism. Because God's promises and his word is not made void. And so that shows us something. You ready? Two believers, or, or every believer, can fit in either one of two categories. Every worshiper of God can fit into either one of two categories. All right, and you can uh, be like the people of Israel at this time that we find in verse 1, where it says, And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. That God gave them into the hand of Midian. And that's not a literal hand in that the, all the Midianites were just 
putting a bunch of pressure and resistance on them with their, with their hands, literally. It's just uh, something that signified power. That they were overcome by the power of a surrounding people group. Or you can be in the second category. And, and that is where we find the Christians in the start of the early church in Acts chapter 11, where uh, we find in Acts 11 that due to uh, persecution, the Christians were dispersed among different regions uh, throughout, that, throughout that time and that, that area. And this is what happened. This is the result. They continued to preach the gospel, and this is what we find in verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And this is what it says next. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. For every believer, this, this is the, the two categories we can fit in. God's people can either have the hand of the world against them or the hand of the Lord with them. One seems a lot more preferable to me than the other. And that's why we can have great confidence in engaging our communities and the rest of the world with the gospel. Because God's promises will be fulfilled. That's six verses. What time is it? It doesn't matter. Uh, verse 6 through 10, we, we find that uh, eventually that they cry out to the Lord. The same cycle, the same pattern we find throughout the book of Judges. And God sends them a prophet and tells them... In essence, this is on you. This is your fault. You, I, I told you what to do, and you guys failed to obey my voice. And that's what we find in verse 10. And then in verse 11, this is what it says. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. We'll stop right there for a second, to, just to kind of whet your appetite a little bit. Uh, so we find in verse 11 and 12 that we, we, we find Gideon. Uh, first time Gideon is introduced in the Bible, we find him uh, sharing in the same posture as the rest of the people of God. In a vulnerable state. Right, that, that he is there hiding his resources from the Midianites. We know that he's hiding. Well, Scripture said he's hiding, but also uh, because he was beating out wheat in the wine press. He was supposed to beat out wheat in the open threshing floor at that time, which we find out later that he had access to. But, but he was, again, hiding and taking on a weak posture from the surrounding pagan people group. But yet... God still, in addressing Gideon, in, in this, this cowardly state that he's in, as a mighty man of valor. How come God refers to him as a mighty man of valor? Well, where we find Gideon, he doesn't seem very much like a mighty man of valor. He, he's introduced as a character who is weak, cowardly, not, not, not having a whole lot of charisma, it seems like. Not really a lot of characteristics you would expect out of a leader to lead God's people. I'm not going to answer it right now. I'll, I'll, I'll hold that to, for the next few minutes. But just keep that in the back of your mind. Then we go, we go on to see in verse 13 through 14. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying... 
Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand, there it is again, of Midian. Verse 13 through 14, uh, Gideon responds, obviously, with doubt. And he expresses doubt to the Lord. Another not-so-strong characteristic of a leader. And what Gideon does is, is he poses a question that oftentimes many people have asked to them today, especially Christians, of, of try, seeking to try to reconcile how the, the reality of the presence of evil and suffering in the world and the state of humanity with the existence of an all-powerful, all-good, loving God and try to reconcile those two. And look, I'm, I'm, I'm obsessed with Christian apologetics. I love, I'm hours every day I spend studying on Christian apologetics. It's, it's what my degree is in. And, and that is, by the way, if you don't know, uh, the art of defending the Christian faith. And I love, I love uh, wrestling with questions like evidence for God's existence and, and uh, the reliability of Scripture and the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. I love talking about those things. I, I'm, I was... But this past last Tuesday, I had a group of skeptics in front of me and, and uh, would allow me to kind of share a little Bible study with them. And I really sat there and said, for the next hour, just ask me as many questions and any concerns, objections you have about the Christian faith, and we can talk about it. I, I could sp- do that for hours. And, and this is one of the questions that is oftentimes posed in, in that realm of apologetics. That is, how can a good, loving, all-powerful God be compatible with the presence of evil and suffering in the world. No matter how much I love this question, I, I, I love God's answer to Gideon much more. And God, God did not answer Gideon with an explanation and how to reconcile the two. But instead, he responded with something more along the lines of, then do something about it. Then do something about it. Very similar to the to the uh, the voice of the Lord that 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 gave that message to the wealthy businessman and the startup of Grace at the Green Light Ministry. Then do something about it. Our core team at, at Renovate Church, um, we are a, a group of people that joined the church plant, are uh, not because we were unhappy with the churches we were at, uh, or not because we wanted something better for our families, but simply because we wanted to do something about the brokenness in our world. We know the statistics. We don't just know statistics. It's not just cold, hard facts. We experience those things in our day-to-day lives living in Cleveland and in the Mississippi Delta. And, and it's simply because we want to make sacrifices so that we can change something and reverse the brokenness in our communities. Uh, we have one guy that actually stepped down from one of his two jobs. and He has, took a pretty uh, good pay cut. Um, and just, just another uh, source of income that was severed and has two daughters and a wife. And, but he, he stepped down from that so that he can be a part of the church plant. We have every single core team member is making a sacrifice. We're being sent out by Calvary Baptist Church. It's not a church split. We love those people. That, that's our faith family. That we, we, we love to live life with them and, and, and live a life, the Christian life, with those people and walking alongside them. But we want to make sacrifices because, again, we simply want to do something about the brokenness in our world. Renovate Church, we have one value. We have five values, actually, but just just to give you guys one. 
uh, something that we call community immersion. Or I, they don't call it that. I call it that. I'm trying to get them to call it that. But community immersion, that, that, is, that just means that uh, we want to transform our communities from the inside out. That is, we want to be in, in their territory on the grounds they are comfortable with instead of gathering them where we are more comfortable at. We want to transform the community from the inside out or renovate our community from the inside out. Uh, th this is done primarily in different ways. One is just to show up to as many community events that, that are put on by a community that we can, uh, but also done through something we have called missional communities. Uh, very simple, uh, similar to you guys' discipleship group. It's, it's small groups uh, of people that we meet regularly with for Bible study, for prayer, uh, things like that, and to hold each other accountable in that. Uh, but also, each uh, uh, missional community has a segment within our community that we are assigned to and that we uh, keep constant contact with those people so that we can go and serve those people uh, build relationships with those same people, love those same people, and eventually engage uh, those same people with the gospel. Because we want to go to our areas in our community to make changes on their grounds, not our, on the grounds that we are more comfortable with. And then we find in verse 15 and 16. And he said, that is Gideon, and he said, more doubts, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Get this response. This is big. This is very big. Verse 16. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you. And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. That's right. Maybe my favorite part in this passage our key to success is not our leaders' charisma or, or natural boldness or giftedness in teaching. If it was, my goodness, I, I would not be planting a church right now. That's not what we find Gideon in doing. What we find our strength to be is this. You ready? God's guidance and presence. That's our strength. That's our source of strength is God's guidance and presence. This is why, I'm answering the question I posed earlier, this is exactly why uh, God referred to Gideon as a mighty man of valor. Not because Gideon had all this charisma and, and, and was a gifted leader. He, he was seen, perceived as a coward when he was first encountered by God. He's a mighty man of value, uh, valor because God was with him. He actually said that three times in those verses I read, that, that the Lord ensures Gideon to go out and do this. Is it not I who send you? Well, one of, we, we know the mission of the church, right? We, we know in Matthew chapter 28 and, and verse 19, it says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the triune God, teaching them to obey all that Jesus commands us. Oh, we know the mission. Right, but I'll, I'll tell you a pet peeve of mine, all right, if I can do a little bit of venting, is when people oftentimes skip to that command and not address the verse before and the verse after. Before Jesus gave the command to make disciples of all nations, he felt it worth noting the truth that, behold, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
He felt that was worth noting before he gave the command. And then afterwards, in verse 20, what's he say? Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It tells us this. Our mission, the Great Commission, is not to go. It's to therefore go. It, it, it is carrying the truth that all authority in heaven and on earth is Jesus. And this Jesus is with us in this mission as we permeate the world with his reign. That's the mission of the church. We just, man, if, if we just had the Great Commission without those truths right there, again, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do this. Not, not one of a, a Char, Charlie and Trey are probably a little better off than, than I am. They would probably sustain a little bit longer. But my gosh, if I didn't know in planting a church that, that the one who has given me this command to, to, to permeate his reign for his glory, and he's not with me, couldn't do it. There's no way I could do it. That our strength is God's guidance and presence in the mission and overturning darkness of the world. And in verse 17 through 21, we, we find that, again, Gideon doesn't believe him. And so Gideon uh, uh, says, wait right here, angel of the Lord. I'm going to go back, and he brings some materials uh, to get the angel of the Lord to prove to him that God is speaking to him. Uh, he brings materials that we typically don't have possessions of today. Uh, he brings back a goat. Some of you guys may have goats. I, I, I shouldn't have taught out turn. Goats, uh, some broth, some uh, unleavened cakes and flour, and he, he brings it to the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord instructs him to, to lay it all down on this rock. And then all of a sudden, behold, this, this rock has fire that shoots out from it. And then what we find is in Gideon's response is this. As soon as that happened in verse 22, he says this. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for not now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abyssalites. I'll tell you why this is significant here. It, it was actually uh, uh, customary for Jews to identify special events or places in their lives by putting up monuments. Uh, we find this a lot in, throughout the book of Genesis. Uh, you find it a lot in the book of Joshua as well. And, and uh, what they did, many times they put up that monument uh, to commemorate an encounter with God that had a profound impact on them. That, that this is why it's significant. At this point of God's revelation to Gideon was Gideon's turning point. This was Gideon's turning point here. When he finally perceived who he finally was, well, who he was dealing with. That Gideon went from not as much doubt, there's still more doubt that was carried along his missions and tasks that God gave him, but, but he went from as not as much cowardly to or very cowardly to not as much cowardly because he perceived that it was the Lord God Almighty who he was dealing with. That it was the Lord God Almighty who was the one that was with him and sending him. This is another thing. There's much work to be done. 
And yes, God is our strength, his presence and guidance and direction in our lives is our strength, but it's also something else that needs to be pointed out. In our mission to overturn the darkness of the world with God's light, being empowered by him and used by him, before being used by God, we must first know who it is who guides us. There's a big problem with a lot of Christians in ministry, and I don't say vocational ministry in in a way that's limited to just that. Uh, If you're a Christian, you're called to the ministry. Uh, There you go, if, if you didn't know that. Uh, you're called to serve the Lord and to permeate his reign by his power and guidance in your life. Uh, but, but there's so many people today, and I get caught in this too, that we prioritize doing for Jesus so much that we neglect being with Jesus. We have here a moment that, that Gideon had that he was given task of doing for the Lord God. But now what motivated him was being with the Lord God. We know this because in many cases, we see Gideon perceive that he was the angel of the Lord or that he saw the Lord face to face. In many instances, seeing the Lord face to face is a figure of speech for intimacy with God. No, God doesn't have a face, right? He's immaterial, spirit, as the Bible teaches. But just as we find in Exodus 33, 11, when, when Moses had this specific encounter with God, it, 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 it signified this intimacy with him, a, a, a close personal encounter with God. So, so Gideon's monument here, or the altar that he built for the Lord, was a reflection of God's revelation in him, that he now has a better idea and close uh, personal intimacy with the Lord that he didn't have before. We find here by Gideon's response when he says, Alas, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face with with fear. That is, he had a recognition of of fear and dread because of who it was who he was dealing with. Who it was, it was God Almighty in his fierceness and holiness who he was speaking with. And that it is in fear and awe and reverence that we are led by this fierce divine warrior as God himself in our mission, yet a God who is at peace and well disposed to those he is near. I don't know about you guys, and it may seem somewhat paradoxical uh, for a lot of people who aren't really pondering this as much in this passage, but the combination of the fierceness of God and his power leading a people who he is at peace and well disposed with is one of the most beautiful combinations that I know of. And this idea of being with God and prioritizing being with Jesus over our task of doing for Jesus. I, I, I'll tell you just kind of the point of my life when, when I felt the Lord's calling in my life to plant a church. Uh, it, it was several years ago when I started to feel something in my heart to, to, to do some type of work in vocational ministry. I didn't really want to, you know, I, I, I just wanted to have a, a quote unquote secular job and just be around lost people every day so I could share the gospel with lost people every single day. That, that was the dream. Just an eight to five job, sharing the gospel with people, working to go back home to the wife and kids. All right, that, that was the dream. Uh, but just having this, this more of this calling into this vocational ministry uh, eventually led to the point of COVID-19 or, or in 2020 when we had the lockdown. 
And, and I, I confess that time was a lot of cons that happened for people at that time. There, there are people that really hurt and experienced a lot, a lot of pain at that time. Um, but, but for me, uh, I, I, there was a blessing in that, as there was for a lot of people. Uh, just like many of you and many other people in the world that, you know, I, I had a job that, that in, involved uh, socializing with people. And so I couldn't work, couldn't do much things online. Uh, so I had a lot of time on my hands, right? I, I didn't, I'm a schedule oriented person. I love, I, nothing makes me happier than making a schedule for the next week. I'm serious. I, I love making a schedule. I love having something to do every hour of the day. I, I, I love it. I enjoy it. Uh, um, but man, I had nothing to do. And so that was a time that I spent just living in Cleveland, uh, staying with, with a, a, a couple of friends in one of their apartments by ourselves. Uh, just woke up, got to sleep in, and just spent hours and hours and hours in the Word to just take my time. Don't have to go do anything. Don't have to go to work. Just, just I can just relax and just stay in the moment there. Spend that t- so much time praying and, and being around other uh, guy friends that I was living with at the time who were strong believers as well, and just having a community there and talk about what the Lord is, is teaching us in that time. I got to memorize scripture. I had a chance to go and just memorize the book of Ephesians. By the way, that's not a brag. I'm saying I'm a slow learner. And so if you can memorize a book in the Bible, if I can memorize a book in the Bible. Seriously, scripture memorization, that, that changed my life. Just to take time each day memorizing scripture. And so, and then when I would get done with all that, I would watch a couple sermons from different preachers. It was a time of me just not just taking time of not as much doing for the Lord, which is necessary and that we should all be doing, but to take time and just being with the Lord. And because we, we, if we are to be with the Lord, that fuels our service and doing for the Lord. It, it was at that moment where um, that calling was clear in my life that I was to plant a church. Um, and, and I was to plant a church to, to, to dedicate my life and service to the Lord and, and winning the loss for his glory the rest of my life. That, that's all I want to do. Whether it's planting churches the rest of my life or anything. I don't care. Be, being a, a door holder for people in the church, that's what my life is dedicated to. To close, I, I want to say this. That the people of God can overturn the darkness of the world. Reversing the brokenness in our communities by, yes, recognizing that there's a lot of work to be done. But in that work that needs to be done, to make God our guidance and presence as our source of strength. And also to know the God who he is that guides us and leads us in his strength. And just so there's no misunderstanding here, and I hope I didn't make it come across in this way at all, uh, the church is not the hero of this story. That, that the, the church, as we find with Gideon, uh, God using weak, broken vessels, ancient jars of clay, is just a way that he can manifest his power even more in the world. Now, actually, if you zoom out and, and see Judges in and, and light of the whole biblical story, we find that uh, it's all pointing to Jesus. And that Jesus is the ultimate judge. 
is that we are not the heroes, Jesus is the hero. That, that each judge actually either eventually might have temporary success, but would eventually lead God's people in, astray and to act as a stumbling block, as in Gideon's case. Or they would be somewhat successful, but then after they died, a few years later, people of God would rebel again, and thus uh, are continuing the cycle throughout Judges of rebellion. But we have a God who we serve, Jesus Christ, who lived a perfectly sinless life, that does not at all, in his being, is incapable of leading his people astray, and he is eternal. And his work will continue until the day he returns and restores his creation that he began. Ultimately, Jesus is the judge. We are not the ultimate deliverers. We're used by God in order to, to, to do a work to expand his kingdom for his glory. But, but we are not the deliverers. Jesus is the deliverer. And so we overturn darkness in following him. But this is the last thing I want to close with. We as Renovate Church, we see, uh, you want to know the foundation for why we are doing this. Our core team sees the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, which detracts from the value of everything else we can find in the world. That's why we plant church, because we see him worthy of praise and worship and surrender, and we want others to experience the joy that we have as well. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you, God, that you, you are not just a God that commands us to, to go out and win the nations to yourself. But, Lord, you are a God within your being and nature and glory. You are a God that makes it easy for us to surrender. That when you enlighten the eyes of our hearts, we see clearly, Lord, you are worthy of worship. That in you fulfills all our inner human longings and yearnings. That, that they're all met in you and that is only done through access uh, of the cross. That on the cross, by your sinless life, you, you die taking on the sins of those who would eventually put their faith in you and resurrect on the third day to showcase your victory over sin and death. And now we get to walk in newness of life and celebration of that. Lord, I pray that you will continue to lead us to do that uh, in our day-to-day -day lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.